We're coming to the end of 2016, and I wanted to make an end-of-year pitch for support for the SRB podcast. Since February 2015, I've conducted over 59 interviews on topics as wide-ranging as Putinism, post-war Kiev, Belarusian nationalism, Stalinist terror, Russian punk rock, Russian porn, Soviet gypsies, and many, many more. The topics have been an eclectic mix to give as complex a picture of Eurasian history, society, and culture as I can. I've interviewed some incredibly knowledgeable people who've generously given their time to offer us all interesting and thoughtful discussions. I think it's safe to say there isn't a podcast on the region like it. Though the podcast is free to listeners, it's not free to make. The SRB podcast is a one-person operation. Each episode from start to finish takes about 15 hours to produce. Reading on average a book a week is like being back in grad school. Editing out all the ums, kind ofs, you knows, and rights take up to five to six hours alone. Then there are hosting and equipment costs. So if you like what you hear and find the discussions valuable, especially at a time where thoughtful discourse about the region is so scarce, please consider becoming a monthly patron or making a one-time donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Now on with the show. Вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Today's podcast is the first in a series of discussions I, pl- I plan on having throughout 2017 for the centennial of the Russian Revolution. I plan on having one, perhaps two a month, exploring the revolution from many different angles. So I thought I'd start off in a bit of a fun way by talking to Doug Smith about his new biography on Grigory Rasputin. Who was this man? How did he gain the confidence of Nic- Nicholas and Alexandra? What are the facts and myths surrounding Rasputin's life and death? Doug's new biography is an impressive work that gives what is sure to be the definitive text on the phenomenon of Grigory Rasputin. Doug Smith is an award-winning historian and translator. He is the author of five books on Russia. His last book, Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy, won the Pushkin House Russian Prize in 2013. His new book is Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, published by Macmillan. Here's Doug Smith. So you have this new book out on uh, Gurgory Rasputin, a very interesting and long book, a biography of him. And as you know, and as you state in your introduction, there are many books about Rasputin. So what do you seek to do in this biography that makes it unique from all past treatments of Gurgory Rasputin? No, that's a good question. I I was, I think when I started, I I looked up how many titles there were on Rasputin, the uh, Library of Congress online catalog and i think it was around 150 something so you've got to have a, a good justification to add one more to that rather long list um you know it sort of grew out of my last book former people and when i was reading a lot about sort of the final years of Tsarist russia i was surprised the degree to which Rasputin seemed to hang over everything and be on everyone's mind and like you you know i, I came out of an academic scholarly trained background and i think i don't know about you but at ucla you know if i'd said i wanted to write on rasputin i think you know people would have laughed at me it's just too popular it's too 
fantastical. It, it sort of reeks of of the circus. But you know, I I I did realize that well, actually, he really was that you know dominant at the time and that important in people's thinking. So I started to read some of the biographies of him, and I just came away reading those feeling like they were caricatures in a way. I didn't really feel like they got at the complexity of the man. It was often overstated, florid language, the Antichrist, you know, the devil incarnate kind of thing, which I didn't find convincing. And then on the other hand, you've got this uh, new new scholarship, although I suppose you should put scholarship in quotation marks, among some Russian nationalist historians now that, that just invert it. So in other words, you know, he becomes a truly saintly figure. He becomes the true embodiment of orthodox holiness and what have you. Um, and they whitewash all of his uh, less savory aspects. So why, why is that? Like, why why would a nationalist grab onto him and, and invert the story like that? Do you have any idea? Well, I think part of it is, you know, the 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 royal family is now considered holy martyrs of the church, and so the, I think part of the thinking is is well, if 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 they've been recognized by the church then how could it be that the man that they look to for religious guidance, for spiritual nourishment, for enlightenment, how could he be some sort of devilish character, right? And I think one of the things is everybody who's approached Rasputin has trouble sort of making sense of all the different sides. So what I wanted to do was to sort of find the man underneath the myth and the, and the legend. And I realized from the beginning that if I was going to do this book and to do it properly and do it well, that I, I couldn't just sort of read what had been published about him. I really had to go back and live in the archives and, and dig and dig and dig and get all the information I could from the primary sources and, and sort of cut away from all of the things that had been said about him since his murder in 1916. And I, I like to think that I've succeeded, but in one ways I do think that that is something that is, whether you believe what I've come up with is the accurate depiction. I think everyone would have to recognize that that it's unearthed all sorts of new information that we've never even known before. Yeah, and I want to get into some of that uh, new information in a bit. But it is one of the most impressing aspects of this book is that it's just the sheer amount of research that you did do for it. I mean, you worked in archives in seven different countries. You worked in archives as far away as in Siberia over a six-year period. It's incredibly impressive in and of itself. So talk about your experience in, in researching this book. Well, I have to say from the start that I was I was aided by three or four dedicated Russian archivists and scholars. You know, like a lot of us, I, I'm very rooted to my life at home, family, and, and other commitments. And I can't just pack up and say, you know, to my family, okay, I'll be back in five years. And I, I've, I've done this now for, for three books with the same uh, dedicated group of friends and colleagues in Moscow and Petersburg. And w what I do is I, I, I go over and I get the lay of the land and I figure out which archives have what material. I go through all the inventories to find out what sort of documents there are. And then I start doing some of the reading. And then I meet with them and we go through all this. And, and, and they then are the ones who are there on the ground and can go through and take detailed notes on every file. They often can Xerox materials for me. And it's a very sort of collaborative kind of thing. And it's, it's the only way I could have done this kind of book. There's no way I think one person could physically do it. I do most of the research 
but they add a lot to it. But you're right, I did. I went to Qimian, for example, and spent several days in the archive in Qimian. Uh, I went to Tobolsk and spent several days uh, in the archive there and found some, you know, some great, some great things there that had eluded previous biographers, especially information that, that sheds light on the first 30 years of his life, about which we know very little. Pakrovskaya to his village and walked the streets there and went to the museum uh, that a fascinating couple has set up. And then I went all over Europe by myself. I went to Berlin for a week. I went to Paris for a week, Vienna for a week, various places in the UK, including the National Archives. And then obviously there's, there was amazing amount of material in the States that no one had really looked at, both at the Hoover Institution, but also at the, uh, uh, the Bachmetyev Archive at Columbia, at uh, Yale University, and, and at Harvard. I mean, I'll give you one example. Like at Harvard University are the personal papers of Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, cousin of the Tsar and obviously member of the conspiracy that killed Rasputin. And, um, for example, his diaries were deposited there. And none of the previous biographies had gone to, to look at those diaries. And there he, he speaks about about the murder. He writes about it on the one-year anniversary when he's in exile in, in Persia. And, and uh, I gleaned a good deal of information from there. So, again, I, I, I do pride myself on the, on the level of, of the research. And I do think that that maybe gives us, not only does it sort of blow up a lot of these old myths that have stood around for too long, but also I think it gives it a fine-grained texture to the story that we've lacked before. Now, now, the theme of the book, which is, is quite interesting, is about the creation of Rasputin in quotes, right? That is to say, as it's not as much about what Rasputin did in his life, though it is certainly about that, but also what people thought he was doing. And this is something you say quite explicitly. How did you go about what you call in the text the unusually arduous undertaking to separate fact from fiction and reliable sources from myth? And do you think that the real Rasputin is even recoverable, given this large myth around him? That was something I struggled with terribly, to be honest. You know, if you look at, for example, just take the memoir literature, and it's it's all over the map. And, and so you'd read people's descriptions of who he was, what his character was like, and it'll paint him in the most, uh, you know, darkest, blackest of terms, most outlandish of, of metaphors. And then you'll read some, some other memoir of somebody from the same period who, who will say he was a nothing, you know, that his personality was, was uh, utterly insignificant, that he just filled a hole that had to be filled. That was very challenging. What I did sort of notice, though, as I, I went through this and thought about carefully, is the, the people that said that he was a nobody, the people that said that there was nothing special about him, typically were people that had never met him, uh, but just heard the rumors about him, whereas those who actually had interaction with him, even people who were critics of his, had to admit that there was a, a truly special quality to, to the man, that there was a charisma and an energy that sort of expressed itself through him and his movements, his, his speech, his eyes and everything. So that was, you know, sort of one of the things that I did. I do think that as it is possible to get at the man himself you know, and I, I could give you uh, some examples, but if you just take, for example, the letter that Rasputin wrote to Tsar Nicholas in the summer of 1914, one of the things, and other biographers have mentioned this, but I think it hasn't seeped into public consciousness, is the degree to which uh, Rasputin truly was a man of peace. I mean, he's often portrayed as this sort of personification of evil, but he was not a cruel man and he was not an evil man, and he truly was somebody who sort of believed the message of peace 
as he read it in the Gospels. Then there's this truly remarkable document, this letter that through various strange twists of fate ended up at Yale University in the Beinecke Rare Book Library there that uh, Rasputin wrote in the summer of 1914 after he barely survived an assassination attempt and was lying in hospital. And Russia, along with the rest of Europe, was racing to war. And he, he wrote this long letter to Nicholas, begging him, pleading with him to resist the calls for war, to keep Russia out of any any conflict in Europe, and not due to some sort of really you know, realpolitik, if you will, but, but the idea that killing was wrong, that killing went against Christian teaching. And he's, you know, he wrote in these very apocalyptic terms that he saw oceans of blood, eternities of darkness, waves of chaos sweeping over all of Russia if we were, he were to go to war. Uh, you know, this is a true letter. This is a true expression of who he was. And this is like one instance, I think, where, you know, by going back to these original documents, we can cut through the myth and the, and the legend and get a, a glimpse of, of who this person really, really was. So who was this man, Grigory Rasputin, from this small village near Tobolsk in Siberia? How you would evaluate him? You know, you said that uh, you some of the new information you found was about his early life, the first 30 years of his life. You know, taking that into consideration and everything that came after, how you, would you evaluate him as a person? What do you understand about him? Fascinatingly, fascinatingly complex, full of contradictions. There was, he was vain. He was ambitious. He's someone who would lie. He was a philanderer. He was a drunk. He could be arrogant. He had a temper. But he was also somebody who who truly was sort of this loyal subject. I think he really saw himself as a loyal subject who wanted to offer himself up to to the Tsar. Um, and I think that was sincere. I think it was genuine. Uh, I think his belief in orthodoxy, his belief in, in the Bible and its teachings was sincere. And I think he truly did in his own way, sort of try to guide himself by that. Another example, other than just sort of his his insistence on staying out of, of, out of armed conflict and the, the sinful nature of murder and killing of any kind, was his almsgiving, which is another side of his character that hasn't received a lot of attention. He truly was a charitable person. He was not motivated by money, despite what has been written about him. And uh, money would come to him by people seeking favors and attentions and bribes and stuff, and it would just just as quickly as he received it, he would be giving it over to some someone begging for some sort of help. So he was very generous in that way. He was even like a good a good a good father figure. He he loved his children deeply. His three children, two daughters and a son. He made sure that his daughters were given the best possible of educations. He worried about their dating. <laughs> he worried about about their uh, meeting young men and tried to guide them away from shady characters. His son Dmitri was was. Uh, drafted and taken up into the army and in the first world war he was terribly worried about his son's safety and did what he could to see that he avoided frontline service because the thought of losing him was something he couldn't imagine so i think there were these these, these definite positive sides to him but but he's he's complicated he's neither you know like all of us he's neither all good nor all, or all bad um i think so much of the the reputation that that attached itself to him was less a function of his own personality and his own actions it was much more a reflection of the troubles that were besetting all of Russia at the time. I think that's one of the things that, that I hope comes through in the book is, you know, we like to think of, of Russia in this sort of simplistic way in which a depraved, immoral peasant comes to the capital and the, 
and the court, and he's the one who who tarnishes it and destroys it with his mendacity and, and evil nature. When in, in other, in some ways, it was just the other way around. Really, I think that we, you know, how depraved and, and in a sense morally bankrupt late Tsarist uh, Russia was, and and corrupted him. And I think that makes for a, a truer, in a sense, more uh, enlightening approach uh, and understanding of what was really going on. Let's let's talk a bit about that context, because I, I agree with you. It's I think it's really important because. One of the things that always fascinated me about Rasputin is that he was one of many number of mystics and soothsayers and gurus and holy men that were around Russian aristocrats and the royal family at the time. I mean, there seems to be, given the troubles surrounding within the country itself, there seems to be an attractiveness to these types of people and what they could offer um, in terms of solace and, and comfort and, you know, some vision of the future. So what made members of the Russian elite so interested and susceptible to these types of figures? Yeah, well, I think, you know, as a lot of people have written about sort of the um, cultural, emotional zeitgeist of uh, fantasy of Russia, of, of the Silver Age, and it, 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 it truly was this time of, of religious seeking. The sort of, there was this sort of turbulence to the emotional tenor of the time, if you will. People were, were feeling adrift. There was this, there was this for sense of foreboding, you know, that, that the apocalypse was, was just around the corner. And people were trying to orient themselves in this world of, of change. Uh, you know, obviously people cite the, the growing revolutionary movement. They cite the defeat during the Russo-Japanese War. They cite the revolution of 1905. And so people were, were on edge, if you will. And I think one thing that's important is to see Rasputin against this backdrop of the Silver Age, of this time of, of change and, and confusion and, and searching for meaning, if you will. And so there was this, this fascination, especially among, you know, much of the, the intellectual elite, but, but maybe even again amongst, you know, sort of the urban classes in, in general, in, in seeking out alternative religious experiences and, and phenomena. And so someone like Rasputin sort of landed on very fertile soil when he went to Moscow or, or, or Petersburg. And yes, there were these other characters. Uh, there was Alexei Shetinian, who was one of the most outlandish of these sort of peasant holy men, if you will, who, who truly was a violent and, and scary figure. And I think for some intellectuals, it was sort of like this being able to sort of come in contact with what they saw as these Dionysian relics from sort of pre-Petrine Russia, you know, it was sort of almost like a form of like time travel or something and, and getting back in touch with the religious impulses of, of the masses from which they felt uh, cut off. So there was this sort of exotic appeal of, of people like Rasputin. And as you say, there were a good many of them making the rounds at the fashionable salons and things like that. And so I think that's what's also important is that it sometimes we think, oh, it's just sort of was the sort of bizarre, mystical qualities of the Empress Alexandra's personality that were so crucial. But she, in that sense, shared similar interests and fascinations and needs with much of the Russian elite at the time. I mean, one of the things I point out in the book that I find very ironic is the mother of Rasputin's murderer, you know, Phyllis Yusupov's mother, Princess Yusupova, was also equally prone to these 
mystical prophet, St. John of Kronstadt, was someone that she looked to for all sorts of uh, help and spiritual guidance. In fact, she believed that he had, had cured her of physical illnesses and things like that. So in a sense, she was engaging in the same sort of practices as was Alexandra. Much of it depended on which person you attached yourself to. That's the idea that, of, of putting your, your faith in these religious holy men from the Narod. And it was a more about which one you thought was closest to the truth. No, it's absolutely fascinating, especially the, the idea of, you know, if you have a, um, a class, urban classes or the upper classes more broadly, who are feeling adrift. It's interesting to me that they look to someone from the Narod, from the people, to, as a way to ground themselves in some sort of trueness of, say, Russia or trueness of Russia's mission or in the Russian people. This always is a fascinating aspect because here you can also see somewhat of a parallel in the revolutionary movement in the sense of trying to get in touch with the Russian Narod, right? It's a quite interesting parallel in this sense. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think there was, you know, for a good uh, many uh, members of educated society, there was, like you say, this the sense of being adrift, right? And what is it that we, we look to to attach ourselves and feel rooted in our society, in our culture, and in, and in our country? And I think, yeah, exactly. If, if, the, you know, if the revolutionaries tried in their own way to make connections with the vast masses, you could almost say that, that some of these aristocrats who surrounded uh, Rasputin were in some sort of way doing something similar. So how did this man, Rasputin, gain the confidence of Nicholas and Alexandra? And, and how did people around the royal family react to his presence and influence over them? Well, he came with, with the best of recommendations. He arrives in, in Petersburg and is immediately taken in by Father Feofan, who had connections to, to the royal family um, and to members of the larger Romanov clan. And it's, it's, it's his vouchsafing uh, for Rasputin as a true holy man of the people, that he's able to make his way to the palace, first meeting Nicholas and Alexandrin in November of 1905. So in one sense, it's these, this sort of imprimatur, if you will, of, of other respected church figures with connections to members of the, of the larger royal family that are, that are important. It's also the troubles uh, that Russia are going through at the time the revolutionary year of 1905, that are important. And it's sort of the the promise that Rasputin gives to Nicholas and Alexandra to, to trust that all will be well, to hold fast to power, not to worry, and that, you know, the people are ultimately still connected to to the throne, to the Romanovs. I, mean, I think that's important, is, is viewing it within that, that context. And then there's also just, I think, the elements of his own personality. They were clearly impressed with his, with truly deep knowledge of scripture, his, his, his way of speaking about religion, his way of speaking about the Bible, which seemed fresh, dynamic, natural, grounded in a true lived experience, as opposed to the more arid scholarly ways uh, of speaking about religious life that so many of the members of the official church spoke about it with sort of, you know, sort of, sort of bureaucratic civil servants, if you will. Um, but this was the sort of the living embodiment 
of, of Christian teachings. I think that was very powerful. And, and they, they waiting and looking for him. I, I have a very long chapter on Rasputin's predecessor, the Frenchman, Monsieur Philippe, who truly has to be, has to be seen as nothing but a pure charlatan, <laughs> which he clearly was. What an interesting character. But, you know, he had, had an interlude at court, and they were deeply impressed with him, which again shows clearly the failings of Nicholas and Alexandra. But he was run away from court. But before he left, he did say, you know, a new friend will come. Just you wait. And they believed him. And so they were already looking for somebody. And I think that's also an important way of understanding how quickly and why Rasputin was embraced. The soil had been prepared for, for someone like him. Now, you detail the fact that and it makes sense that if somebody like this is so close to the royal family that the police would start looking into his background and who this person was. And you detail two police investigations into the Rasputin, where he came from. And most interesting, his religiosity and, and looking into whether he belongs to this sect, the Christi. The, the investigations took place first one in 1906 and the second in 1912. What were the police looking for and what did they find? Well, those were fascinating chapters to, to his story. You know, it's, it's often been believed that that first investigation was launched by enemies back in, in Petersburg. Mm. Uh, but when I looked at the file, the investigation file, into his connections or possible connections to the Hlisti, it as I read them, the, the initial investigation was not prompted from Petersburg, but grew out of um, observations by officials back in Siberia. Mm. Because, it, it, you know, the first police documents, yeah, like you say, they go back to 1906, when Rasputin had only met the royal family once or maybe or maybe twice. But what they were noticing was that in this godforsaken village of Pokrovskaya on the Tura River, there was this man who was boasting about connections to the Grand Dukes and Duchesses back in, in Petersburg, who was receiving uh, visitors from Petersburg, who was receiving significant amount of money from Petersburg. And obviously all of this stood out to the local officials, and they became very suspicious about exactly who this peasant was. And they, I think, were the ones who were responsible for launching this initial investigation, which really took off in 1907 and lasted for approximately a year, um, in which basically the bishop of, of Kabul set out a group of, of, of priests to go to Pakrovskaya and to interview Rasputin and to interview people that knew him and try to figure out exactly who he was, uh, what he was up to, and whether or not he had connections to the Khlisti. Who were these Khlisti? What was this religious sect, and why was it so worrisome? Well, the Khlisti were one of these offshoots of the Orthodox Church that went back um, several hundred years and that had always been seen as suspect, heretical, dangerous, and subversive as outside recognized practice. They were said to have all sorts of crazy and bizarre rites, you know, that often ended in, in massive group couplings on the floor, demonic uh, in nature. And the church was always eager to search out and stamp out any known instances of groups like the Hlisti. 
the church as well as the state led investigations and it was said from 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 early on that Rasputin had connections to this orgiastic sect if you will there's never been substantial proof although historians have argued about possible connections to these and it was in 19 uh, exactly 1906 that the earliest investigation was launched by church and state officials back in Siberia into his possible connection. And they, they interviewed Rasputin. They interviewed locals who were, were drawn to him and his teachings. They interviewed people who had stayed at his home at various times. They even conducted searches of Rasputin's home in, in Pakrovskaya to see what sort of books he had, to see what sort of icons he had, to investigate secret sites where, where rituals might be carried out. And the first investigation lasted for, for approximately a year, and they dug very deeply, and they interviewed a good number of people. But at the end, uh, in 1908, the investigation was closed without coming to a definitive con conclusion about whether or not he was a police or not. The investigation then lay dormant for four years until 1912, when it was reopened. And it was reopened at a time when... Rasputin became a truly national figure, a time when the Duma became acutely interested in Rasputin and, in fact, wanted to launch a, an official inquiry into who he was, what his background was, what the extent of his relationship was at court and the uh, extent of his powers over Nicholas and Alexander, as well as the influence he appeared to be establishing over the Holy Synod and over uh, the church as, an, as, a, as a structure, as a bureaucratic structure, if you will. And that was the reason it was reopened in 1912. All of the investigations uh, that were done at the time never came back with any really conclusive answer one way or the other, although they leaned in 1912 towards saying that there is really no proof that, that Rasputin was a member of the Khalisti. Historians have debated it ever since. I come down on the side that I think almost every honest biographer comes down on now, which is that he was not a member of, of the Khalisti. One biographer, Edward Radzinski, insists that he was, but I think he's kind of the only one who still does that. I read one biographer who I think put it best when he said, calling somebody a Khalist in 1915 Russia was analogous to calling an American a communist in the 1950s. It was the, the label that you used if you wanted to destroy someone's reputation. But if you look at his commitment to church rite, to church ritual, the fact that he always attended regular Orthodox services, to the nature of his family life, and things like that, there, there really isn't convincing proof that he was a member of the Khalisti. It was, again, one of these, I would say... Um, uh, attempts to damage him and to destroy his reputation. That is ultimately at the base of, of, of this sort of uh, talk about him. And also, it's always made for such a good story. And I think a lot of biographers in the past have, have gone for what was sexy and exciting over what was, uh, in fact, the truth. Nevertheless, you know, he, he several scandals did uh, erupt around him. What were these scandals, and how did members of the aristocracy, but also society at large who are tuned into these things, react to them? I definitely come down on the side that, you know, he was a philanderer. He he had roaming hands. He was constantly groping any woman that sort of came within arm's reach of him. 
And I think there's no doubt that he had a great many mistresses and lovers, and and even his own daughter Maria, who who uh, you know wrote about her father and tried to defend him. Even she admitted that you know he had he had needs that were greater than the average man or something like that. And 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 much of of what angered educated society about Rasputin was this very fact about him was how could this man who has entree to the palace is even allowed into the you know to the nursery around the grand duchesses how can this be when we know this man to be you know lecherous and that was i think the the, the chief failing of Rasputin that generated so much of the scandal around him and in this sense i think it's very justified that people were so worried about Rasputin, his place at the palace, and how that undermined the credibility and sanctity, if you will, of the throne and of the royal family. And, you know, this was something that greatly worried members of the larger Romanov clan, greatly worried uh, Nicholas's sisters, greatly worried Alexandra's sister, Grand Duchess Ella. Um, and they repeatedly kept saying to to Nicholas and Alexandra, don't you realize how this tarnishes the image, you know, of the dynasty? And they, their response was repeatedly, the stories aren't true, they're overblown, and this is our private family matter and is not a public concern. And in this, you see the utter blindness of Nicholas and Alexandra, the degree that they did not realize that as the emperor and the empress, they weren't entitled to a private life as a normal person would be. And, and to continue to permit somebody access to themselves when there were such stories was quite simply suicidal, as, as we now know. And this was something that they could never fully understand and really was very powerful in undermining uh, the prestige uh, of the crown. Yeah, one of the, the interesting aspects about Nicholson and Alexandra is this aspect of the private life. I mean... Yes, Alexander III was also very much a family man as well. I mean, he's one of the first Tsars that actually has photographs uh, and pictures of him with his family. And Nicholas and Alexandra too, they're very much family-oriented um, and, and very much geared to a kind of private life. But it, it is quite startling that they didn't seem to understand that it was their their behavior was more than their own private life. What did... Rasputin provide them in terms of this private aspect of their of their life. What did he give them that they saw so much value in him, his presence? That's really so much at the at the heart of the matter. It's typically interpreted as hinging on the illness of Tsarevich uh, Alexei. That obviously they very quickly realized their son was a hemophiliac. They were desperately worried about his health, well-being, and, and safety, and they latched onto Rasputin as somebody who was able to cure the bleeding spells, bring Alexei back to health, and without him, the boy would have no hope of survival, and thus Rasputin had this hold over Nicholas and Alexandra. Now, there's a definite truth to that side of the story, and he did, and I talk about why I think, you know, he was truly was able to lessen the suffering of, of the Tsarevich and to help ease his suffering and to help, you know, guide him back to some sort of normal state, if you will, after these bleeding episodes. But but as I got into the sources, and especially as I read 
deeply the correspondence between Nicholas and Alexandra, it struck me that there was a much more important aspect to their relationship that took precedence over little Alexei. And that was the fact that as much as Alexandra loved Nicholas, she saw him for who he truly was. And she saw just how weak he was, how malleable he was in people's hands. And she was desperate to instill in him a sense of his own will, a sense of his own strength, uh, a sense of his ability to stand up to others and not to be dominated. And she looked to Rasputin to be that willpower, if you will. It's almost like she wanted to pour Rasputin's strength into the body of, of Nicholas. And this is, I think, one of the things that he gave to both of them, to Nicholas and Alexandra, but especially to Alexandra. She gave the strength, the confidence, the belief to act and to rule that both of them at times felt was, was lacking and needed. And so the, 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 the correspondence that Alexandra writes to uh, Nicholas is truly remarkable. I mean, there's countless times, you know, where she is writing to him when he's off at, at general headquarters during World War I, for example, saying, you know, you're meeting tomorrow with the ministers. Now remember, dearie, before you go into the meeting to take the comb that Rasputin sent you and comb your hair and comb your beard and feel his power flow into you so that you can stand up and resist the ministers and say no to their silly ideas. Let Rasputin be your guide. I mean, I think this was so vital to her and, and, and to, to Nicholas in, in, in ways as well. He's, he's more guarded about what he says about Rasputin. She's very open about the, the comfort and confidence he gave her. Nicholas, you gotta read between the lines, but, even he, at, at, at moments, writes in his diaries of, you know, met with uh, Rasputin for two hours this evening. He brought me such comfort and, and peace of mind. And much of this, you know, during the war was Rasputin saying, although he had tried to talk Nicholas uh, out of going to war, once they had gone to war, he constantly was telling him, we will be victorious. God is on our side. You know, have faith, have confidence. I see victory. Uh, of course, all this was completely wrong. But it did give Nicholas a sense of comfort uh, that indeed all would be well uh, for them uh, in the end. Now, there's a lot of mystery around the circumstances of Rasputin's murder. Why was he murdered? And what are the facts and the fictions around this, this pivotal moment? Oh, well, the murder was great fun to dig into because if people have heard about Rasputin, typically it's, it's you know, that he was impossible to kill, right? You know, that he was poisoned and stabbed and shot and dumped, still breathing into the uh, icy waters of the Neva and, and only eventually uh, drowned while making the sign of the cross. I think what's vital to understanding why he was murdered is Russia at the time was in, in, this, in the grips of spy mania. Uh, Russians were convinced that the reason things were going so badly during, uh, at the front and so chaotically across the country after several years of war was not the own incompetence of the Russians, was not the creaking, decrepit nature of the Tsarist system, uh, which was having trouble mobilizing and, and carrying out the fight effectively, but there must be traitors in our midst, right? There's a fifth column. There are spies. There are agent provocateurs. And this became gospel, if you will, for most Russians, that, that Russia was being sold out. And it was believed that 
at the center of the spy network was Rasputin and most likely Alexander, the German-born empress. And people were grasping desperately for simplistic ways out of a horribly complicated situation that was centuries in the making. And, and you know, in Russia, there is a history of political murder. And there was this mistaken, simplistic notion that if we kill Rasputin, that will disrupt the, the spy network, that will free Nicholas from the clutches of the Germanophiles uh, at court. He will lock up the empress and he will be able to now vigorously carry out the successive, successful campaigns against the enemy and Russia will be saved and there'll be a bright future. You know, Yusupov, you know, who helped put together the plot to kill Rasputin also believed that uh, not only was Rasputin a traitor, but that Rasputin, with the help of, of others, particularly a uh, Tibetan physician, Dr. Badmayev, was drugging the Tsar and thus had literally zombified him so that he was not even able to effectively rule, that he had been made into a sort of a mental uh, stooge due to these narcotics that were being administered to him. Again, by getting rid of Rasputin, the Tsar would you know, come to his senses and Russia's bright future would lay out before it. Obviously, it was a, a fantastical, stupid, misguided uh, understanding. Um, and, um, you know, as the poet Alexander Bloch most eloquently put it, you know, the, the bullet that killed Newton actually hit the, the uh, dynasty squarely in the heart. And if you will, it can almost be seen as the opening act of, of the Russian Revolution, which is the way I think it should be, it should be viewed. As to the murder itself, one of the things that I found really fascinating and startling was that the story of what happened that night in the Yusupa Palace is, is largely told in the memoirs of the chief conspirator, Felix Yusupa, which he wrote after fleeing Russia after the revolution. And everyone has sort of taken his story for truth, which is amazing when you think, since when do we take the testimony of a murderer for a fair and just and honest depiction of what has happened? It's startling that people have wanted to believe this. It is a, it is a great tale. But it's utterly outlandish and I think utterly unconvincing. What you have is, is a man who is trying to justify killing somebody in cold blood. And the way he thus does it is to portray Rasputin not just as evil, but as evil itself. Um, and in one of the various versions of his memoirs, that is exactly how he describes Rasputin. Not as satanic, but as Satan, having, you know, taken on human form. This obviously then elevates Yusupov's own courage, bravery, and exposure to danger. He really, in a sense, casts himself as, as the Archangel Michael doing battle against the, the forces of Satan in the book of Revelation. It's utterly outlandish. Exactly what transpired those few hours at his, at his home in Petrograd, we'll never really, really know. What we do know is that if you look at the autopsy photographs, which are held in a museum in, in uh, Petersburg now, it, it's very clear. They shot him three times, twice through the torso, and then a final time uh, at close range directly into the forehead. He was, he was killed rather quickly and, and rather brutally. I doubt he was ever poisoned. There's conflicting accounts about that. But he was clearly shot, died instantly after that final shot to the forehead and was then dumped uh, into the Neva River. And then his murderers concocted this elaborate, utterly unbelievable 
story uh, as a way to exculpate themselves, as a way to sort of wrap themselves in glory when, in fact, what they did was was carry out just a very tawdry uh, and cold-blooded political hit. Yeah, and what was the reaction of the royal family to this? Well, it was divided. You know, a great many members of the family were, were, were pleased. They, they thought also mistakenly that this would open the path for a change in Russia's politics, a change in the prosecution of, of the war. Uh, but there were some who saw it for what it was, which was, you know, political assassination that, that could not be in any way um, condoned. Although I think that was a, a minority a minority view. And, you know, again, ways in which the conspirators completely misjudged the situation, they were convinced, especially Yusuf was, was convinced, that Alexandra was so weak and was so dependent on Rasputin that if they killed Rasputin, she would have a nervous breakdown, she would go to pieces, she would be sent off somewhere. But she was made of much tougher material than they, than they realized, and this is is not exa- not at all is how she reacted to the killing. As you note in in your introduction, there's a whole phenomenon around Rasputin. I mean, to the point where I just actually saw it a, a last week in the grocery store Rasputin beer, um, <laughs> which I've tried. It's not it's not bad. But how do you make sense of Rasputin not only as a phenomenon of that historical moment, and you, you've pretty much talked about that. But also its place as a curiosity and fascination in the present. That's a good one, and I, I I'm not even really sure I have a a good answer on why he became such a popular and pervasive figure in sort of world popular culture, from the Boney M disco hit to <laughs> to the cartoon movie Anastasia. There's something creepy about him. There, there, you know, from the eyes to the beard, to these strange photographs that he would that he would take, to again the stories about his murder, his sexual life, which you know has been exaggerated beyond all recognition. Um, so I think there's there's something about the nature of the man himself, his physical appearance, that is sort of uh, alluring in a sort of sordid, bizarre way. And then I think it also, just as there's this nostalgia and fascination with Nicholas and Alexandra, the two of them, their children, Rasputin, are all somehow bound together as emblems of the decline and fall and of the regime. And I think that there's something also in, in the nature of, of, of their deaths. You know, it's interesting how their deaths are similar murdered in a dark cellar in a dark basement, the bodies loaded into trucks, driven off the attempt to to hide and, and do away with the bodies, only for the bodies to be rediscovered, to be burned, to be reburied. There's something strange that sort of unites them in, in their deaths and in the fates of their bodies that's sort of sort of creepy and, and weird. And I think people have, are always gonna be forever fascinated by these final years of, of the Tsarist regime, by the bloody way in which it all came to an end. And, and he speaks to that ongoing fascination, just as, you know, Nicholas and Alexandra do. You know, there's a whole cottage industry built up around them of books and films. And, and uh, you know, it never, never ceases to, to stop. 
That was Doug Smith, an award-winning historian and translator. He is the author of five books on Russia. His new book is Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, published by Macmillan. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. I want to thank everyone who's contributed throughout this fund drive. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.